0: Well, if you remember, in a new section we just got through looking at the Christian life. We had those three lessons: the walk, the warfare, and the purpose. And now we've moved to the church, and I think we've actually got four different lessons on the church. and And we're going to look at a lot of different things and maybe think of things in in some some good ways. So let's let's just start. When we talk about the church, let me move this up to get it to the right place. Hold on, the the church at the beginning. Okay, when we we think about all the different areas, we're thinking about the church. Let me just remind you of something. Of course, here's the Old Testament, looking forward to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After he died and rose again, he ascended to heaven, and then then the church began. We're going to talk about that tonight. This is us now. We know that the next event will be the what? The rapture that will be followed by a seven-year time period called the tribulation, and then Jesus is going to come back a second time. Here's the first coming. Here's the second coming. He sets up the kingdom for the thousand years and then others. But here's what we're talking about. We're talking about this time period, the body of Christ, the church, the Jews and Gentiles together. We'll talk more about it in a minute. But this is who we're talking about. Uh, Tribulation deals with the nation of Israel. The kingdom has it all together. But here we are, the church, the body of Christ. And so we're going to be looking at that. And so it's really important we understand God's program. Now, when we talk about the word church, and I've got it right here, the church means many things to many people. And, in fact, when we think about it, for some people, it's the building. They say things like, where's your church? We know what they're actually saying is, where is the building that your church meets in? And sometimes I, I want to say, when somebody says, where is your church? I go, well, it's scattered all over the town. But really, well, I know what they mean. They mean, where's the building? You know, we know that. The second thing is, some, for some people, it's an event. They'll say things like, are, are we having church? Because church is an event, it's a time, it's a thing that you do. And then the third time is many people look at church and they see it as the people is what it really is. It's the body of Christ, the people, and, and, and sometimes the word church is negative. For some people who maybe grew up in a, in a maybe not a good situation, for me it wasn't negative at all because I didn't go to church at all. I trusted Christ when I was 19. I'd gone to church two different times in my life before then. And so if you said church, I I didn't really have much of a concept except when I was 12 and went. It was very boring to me. I thought it was really boring. So if you said church, I would say, well, pretty boring. I remember sitting there on a Sunday morning. It was uh, Poplar Springs Drive Presbyterian Church. And I mean, I looked around and people were like this. And like. And I thought, uh, they're the same as me. This is killing me. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm 12 years old. But anyway, but that, you know, church really is the people and it's, it's the body of Christ. And people, why do you gather? I, I saw a, a study the other day that said, why do people go to church? And 79% listed this. They listed activities and fellowship. And I mean, that's, that's okay. Uh, but really, why should we go to church? What's the whole thing? We come together for worship and training. And so a lot of people uh, see church more of as a social event rather than a time to worship our Savior and to be trained and equipped. So let's think about the church and let's talk about the beginning. And we say, church, what are we talking about? Uh, so what is the church? And when we realize that the church is the people who have put their faith or who have uh, believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And so we would just say it this way. The church is is people who have trusted Christ. And so when we say that, believed in Christ for eternal life, so there's people who, who have said they put their faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life believing that he died and rose again and they're trusting in him to give them eternal life and so that's what the church is the Greek word for church means the called out ones it's ekklesia it comes from ek which means out of and kaleo is a Greek word to mean to call and so the, the idea of church is those who are the called out ones we're called out um, basically from the world when you think about it here we are we're, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw it a little bit weird this way This, this we're just going to call it the church which is the body of Christ we'll talk more about it a, a little bit and so when you, here we are as a person and when we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior we're actually called out of the world the fallen world system we still live in the world but we're not of the world and we're called into a relationship and in union with Jesus Christ and we'll talk more about it as we go through this since that's what we are. And so we're the called out ones and it's pretty powerful and when, when you look at, and I, I, this is just more of, of a technical thing, when you look at, uh, we're the called out of the world to Christ. When you look at the way the the Bible uses the word. And when I say the Bible, I'm talking about the New Testament. That Greek word ekklesia means called out. It means an assembly. It's used in three different ways in the New Testament. The first way is in Acts after 7, verse 38. This may surprise you if you've never seen this, but it says, this is the one who is the congregation in the wilderness. That's Acts seven thirty-eight, talking about the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is called a called-out group in the Old Testament. Now, it's not calling them the church like we're talking about the body of Christ, but it's just using that term as they were called out of Egypt and, and you know, that, that whole idea. And um, so so the congregation describes the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. That's the only place in the whole Bible, the New Testament, which Ecclesiastes even refers to Israel in any way, shape, or form. They called out of Egypt. The second aspect was in Acts 19. It says some of them were shouting one thing, and some of them for another. For the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know they came together. You remember in Acts chapter 19, there was a big rebellion in the city, and they all came together and they told Paul, "Don't go in there." And people were shouting and screaming, and it said that some people. Didn't even know why they were there, and they were shouting. And the word for the assembly is the Greek word ekklesia. so you could actually say, and some were shouting one thing and fun for another. For the church was in confusion. Now we, the church, is the called out ones. We'll talk more about it. But this is just used for a mob, a mob in Acts chapter nineteen. And then the third way it's used, which is used all the other times. Uh, all the other times, is the body of Christ. He put all things in uh, subjection under his feet, gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, and fills all in all. So almost every place in the New Testament that ecclesia called out ones, is used. It's used for the body of Christ. It's used for Israel in the Old Testament in Acts. It's used for that mob in Acts 19. And, but, but most every other time, it's talking about the church, which is the body of Christ. It's the, the believers, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. And I think uh, when we look at that, the church is the body of Christ. And it sounds a little funny because when people start talking about it, they say, what do you mean the church? The church is the body of Christ. Well, how can it be the body of Christ? Because the Bible talks about it and it talks about Christ being the head of the body and we're the body. And so, it, so it's a hard concept sometimes to think about. But just look at it this way. The church is the body of Christ, and we're going to talk about it more in a minute. But the church is made up of, of Jews and Gentiles. It's made up of all people who believe, uh, believe in Christ for eternal life, and they're saved and saved forever. When we think about it, I think we go to the top of the next page. When it talks about the church, the body of Christ is described in a number of ways. And Let me give you what those ways are. Number one, it's called the universal church. So just write down, universal. The universal church means everyone who has trusted Christ since the beginning of the church. We're going to talk about it tonight, but let me erase this and give you an idea that at a point in time in history, and we'll talk about it exactly when it happened, but after Jesus died and rose again, if you remember, he ascended into heaven and then walked on the earth for 40 days, ascended into heaven. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit came down, and the church was formed from that point on Anybody that's ever believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life, oh, whatever they are, that whether they've died or whether they're alive—of course, all those people have died—they're called the universal church. That they all make up the body of Christ. That's the universal church. The second thing is we say the church in the world, and that means all believers in the world who are now alive. I had a friend that he went to, he, he went to China. This has been about. Oh, about 18 years ago, and he didn't, couldn't speak, and uh, you know, and he had a Bible, and he was holding it. This was back; it was okay. He had a Bible, and he was on a train, and there was an old man sitting across from him, and the old man looked at him and had, saw his Bible. And the old man took out a piece of paper and drew a cross, and held it up to him, and he went like, "You're, you know, so, so anywhere in the world." who people right now, we'd say the church of the world is all Christians throughout the whole world. We know that that, uh, persecution in a lot of places is really, really bad, and uh, so that's the world. And then the third way that the church is used is the local body, the believers who meet together on a regular basis. The truth is this, that all the believers in Stillwater couldn't meet in one place. I mean, not at one time, you know. I guess, I don't even think... I mean, I don't think even 13, I mean, there's just so many believers. So we all meet in different places. You remember in the beginning of the, the church, especially in the New Testament, they met at homes. They, they might, they would go to the temple area for big meetings. And people would all gather there, four, five, six, ten thousand people. And then they would go and meet in homes. We'll see it a little bit later in one of the other lessons, I think it's less than the next couple of lessons, where it talks about how they would gather and then they would go smaller groups in homes. And so if back in the first century you might you might go to a big gathering, but then probably on a weekly basis, you met in somebody's home, not not four or 500 people coming together, but most likely 30 or 40 people coming together. Churches do it, in that sense, the, the local body. We're fortunate that we say we want to come together. We have an auditorium that holds 500 people. So we can, you know, of course, with the virus and everything, you can not supposed to put 500 in there. But uh, we put, I think for the last four or five Sundays, we've had 300 coming back. I mean, most we've ever had in our auditorium is 620 people. And that was on a an Easter, and we only had 500 seats, so we brought in 100 chairs from the other classrooms. But once the virus hit, you know, the numbers, a lot of people uh, are very... You know, they just don't come. And so for, the last, for for about the last month, Brian, what have we been? We've been having over 300 on Sunday. But we went to two services, and that helps as well. And so anyway, so we are a local church, local body, and so that's where we are. And, and so we ha- understand that. Now, let's, let's talk for a second because this is very important. And let's talk about the difference between the church and the nation of Israel. Some people get confused. We believe that God chose a nation the nation of Israel... They're his people. He gave them promises. It goes back to the covenants and all of those things and the promises and everything. And that we believe that God is not through with the nation of Israel, that every promise, everything given to them will come true. We also believe that after the death and resurrection of Christ, there is the church, and the church is the body of Christ, and the church is different from the nation of Israel. And we have certain promises and everything. Nothing What we do does not cancel out what God has for his people. If you read Romans chapters 9, and 11, 11, it talks about Israel in the past, the present, and the future. And he talks about in the future, as God cast away his people? No way. And he gives all more information. So one of the things I wanted to, for us to talk about is the distinction between Israel and the church. There are a lot of teachings today that actually think or say that the church and Israel are the same, or the church has replaced Israel. It's called replacement theology. And some people teach that here's this this nation, God made all these promises to them. When Jesus came and died and rose again, the nation of Israel rejected Jesus. So they teach that God has rejected them. He's through with them. And so... Uh, church has taken their place. That's called replacement theology. We do not hold to that at all. In fact, we believe every promise and everything made to the nation of Israel going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 the land, the seed, the blessing, the Messiah coming, all of those things. We believe every promise will be true. When when the nation of Israel rejected the Messiah as a whole, God has set them aside for a while and he's using the church, which is Jews and Gentiles, in one body. That's us. That's what it is. Now, let me show you a distinction. And that's what we've got here, a distinction between Israel and the church. And I just want you to see this. Israel is a nation. They were a nation of people. I want you to think back with me. The nation of Israel, when when they went down to Egypt, how many people were there? Do you know? Huh? There were 75. Seventy-five people went down into Egypt. Joseph went first, of course, then the brothers, and then they brought the family, and there was a total of seventy-five people. They were slaves for how long? Four hundred years. When they came out, how many people were there? There were two, at least two million. When they counted men, ages twenty and above, it was six hundred and five thousand, three hundred and something. I can't remember. It may have been six hundred and three thousand. But anyway, there were like six hundred thousand men, twenty years old and up. If you say, well, there's girls and then there's children and there's... You've got at least two million people. And, and so when they came out, they came out as a nation. That's why they went down in there with Abraham, basically, Jacob and Joseph and all. They came out with Moses and got a law, a system to how does this nation survive? We think about us. We're not a nation. We're a what? We're a body. We're the body of Christ. We're not a nation. The nation of Israel, they're made up of Jewish people. Now, remember this. When you say Jews, you have to say Jewish people are Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And that's, true Jewish people are descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob because Abraham had two sons. What was the first name? Other ones? Ishmael. Jacob had... Uh, 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 Isaac had two sons who were... Esau. So, but so those weren't aren't Jewish, and they go in that way. So the true Jewish people are from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. The church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. In fact, when the church started off, it was almost all Jewish at the very beginning. And then, as the message began to spread out, and the Jews, as a nation as a whole, rejected the Messiah, then more and more Gentiles became to, came to know Christ. And so today, the church is mostly Gentile. But if you you may have have got friends or people that you knew who were Jewish people who actually trusted in Christ. I've had several friends in my life who were Jewish people who believed in Jesus Christ, trusted in Him, put their faith in Him to give them eternal life. And uh, so uh, that, that there's there's a lot of that. Okay, Jews and Gentiles in one body. The nation of Israel has the land. What's the land? It, we call it Israel, but it's really a lot bigger than that. It goes from the, the Nile River all the way to the Tigris Euphrates. I mean, it's a big area. They don't have it all yet, but it is a land that has been given to the hymn. It was told to Abraham that he would have the land. It was told to Isaac he would have the land. It was told to Jacob he would have the land. And, of course, it was divided among the 12 tribes. We don't have the land. What do we have? We have the whole world. Where did Jesus say? Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Isn't it funny that we talked about, we studied the Gospel of Matthew, and that took us, What, uh, about two years? And remember, going verse by verse. And if you remember, all the way through the gospel of Matthew, he's presenting himself as the king of the Jews, king of the Jews. And there's even a time he goes out and he says, don't go to anybody but the lost house of the sheep of Israel. And he does that. But at the very end, after the rejection, after he's getting ready, he's in Galilee, and this is the Great Commission. And what does he say? Go there for and make disciples of... All nations its a change so we, because he knew the church was coming. See, he's, he's, we don't know exactly when it was when he was on the mount, uh, the mountain in Galilee, but we know not very long after that he came back to Jerusalem, went to the Mount of Olives and ascended to heaven. And 10 days after that, the church began. So it wasn't that long before the church, and so he's telling them go to the whole world. When you think about it, the, the, the um, nation of Israel had the law of Moses. They have the Mosaic law. And the law was, was had, the, had the Ten Commandments and then had the statutes and the ordinances, had all the aspects of how they lived, what they ate, the clothes they could wear, how they were doing things. They had all the festivals, the feast days, had all of those things. We don't have that. We're not under that. We're not under the law of Moses. Uh, you know, when, when you think about it, there are a lot of people who think the Christian life is, is lived... By the Mosaic law or by a bunch of commands. And the New Testament is by, by, it says Christ is the end of the law to all who believe. We're not under the law of Moses. We've never been under the law of Moses. In fact, of the, the Ten Commandments, nine of the Ten Commandments are restated in different ways in the New Testament. But one that is not restated is what? Which one is it? Don't keep the Sabbath, because the Sabbath is Saturday. We, we worship on the first day of the week. So the nation of Israel, they, they have a nation, we're a body. They're Jews, we're Jews and Gentiles. They have the land, we have the whole world. They have the law of Moses, we have the law of Moses. They have the covenants, the covenants. And there are five covenants that God made with the nation of Israel, four unconditional covenants, one conditional covenant. None of those were made with us. We reap the benefits of the covenants. I think that's what I put there. Yeah, we receive the blessings of the covenants. But we 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 aren't we don't have the covenants. They weren't made with us. In fact, if you read where Paul writes and he talks about it, he says that you were apart from the covenants, apart from this, apart from this. And that's, that's what we are. So here's the church. Now, I want to show you something that you may have never thought about. And I didn't think about it until I started really studying the Bible and began to see what was going on. I told you a while ago that a lot of people, a lot of people, uh, denominations. A lot of people say that God is through with Israel and the church is the new Israel. And have you ever thought about this? Uh, Israel, they had, they had priests, didn't they? Did they have sacrifices? Did the priests wear robes? Uh, did they have an altar? I mean, I think you, as you start thinking about the nation of Israel and what they had, uh, they had sacrifices and robes and priesthood and all that. Well, have you noticed that since many denominations or many Christians think that the church has taken their place, think of the denominations that you know that have priests and robes and an altar and sacrifices. I mean, just think of the Catholic Church. Just think of some of the others. They're, they call him a priest, okay? He wears robes. They have incense. They have, sa- they have an altar. They have sacrifices. Christ is sacrificed every time they have the Lord's Supper. Y'all know that, right? What's their meeting called? A mass. You know what a mass is? They say, what time is mass? Mass means death. Um, because you have the Lord's Supper. And when they have the Lord's Supper, Jesus Christ's body comes there, and they sacrifice him again. That's why he, in a Catholic church, Christ is still on the cross. In our church, is, nobody's on our cross out there, is it? Or, or the cross in here, or anything. So I just want you to see that why, if you ever wondered why some of the people in their traditions have robes and, and altars, and I mean, I have, you know, I've got relatives and people that, you know, you go to their church and there's a certain part you can't, you, no, you can't go there because that's the altar. That regular person can't go up there and say, we're not that because we're not Israel. We're not that. We're the church, which is the body of Christ. So I just want you to think through that. So here we are. We're the body. They're the nation. They're the Jews. We're the Jews and Gentiles. They have the land. We have the whole world. They have the law of Moses. We're not under the law of Moses. They have the covenants. We have received the blessings of the covenants. So that's what you want to think about. Now let's talk about. The church beginning. When, when did the church begin? And so we, we want you to think about it. It started on the day of Pentecost. I'm going to draw up something here real quickly just, just to let you see this. But when Jesus came, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, walked on the earth for 40 days, he ascended into heaven, Ten days later, there was a feast called Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came down out of heaven and placed believers in the body of Christ. And that began the church. So we we have to think about it. What did Jesus say about this? I want you to turn to Matthew 16. Flip over there. I want you to see something. Matthew chapter 16. And we'll see how this plays out, how we know this. Matthew 16, Uh, if you remember that, uh, just go back, is everybody there? Go back to verse 13. It says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do they say the Son of Man is? Now, by the way, the Son of the Man, it goes back to Daniel, Son of Man is the Messiah who sets up a kingdom that will never end. That's why he called himself son of man. Sometimes he called himself the son of David, which means he's the descendant of David who is the king of Israel. When he calls himself the son of man, he's talking about one who will set up a kingdom that will never end. He said, who do they say that I am? And they said, well, some think you're John the Baptist, some think you're Elijah, some think you're Jeremiah, some think you're one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, that's the Messiah, the son of the living God. He's basically saying you're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're You're God. Savior, Messiah, that's what Christ means. It means the anointed one of God. So he's saying, you're the one, you're the right one, you're, you're, you're the Savior of the world. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, Bar-Jonah, means son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father. In other words, for you to grasp this, it couldn't be just, you just didn't figure this out on your own. And then verse 18 is kind of uh, something, because he says, I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The first thing I want you to see is his future. From this time, I will build my church. It's a future event. I wanted to give you two other things real quickly just while we're looking at this because this this is, you know, the, the, the answer. Uh, he said, I will build my church. Let me. I think I've got it right here. He said, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now... When people read that, there are a lot of people who say, Peter is the rock that God builds the church on, so Peter must be the first pope. Peter never was a pope, never said he was a pope. In fact, when he writes his letters, he calls himself a co-elder with, uh, with other believers. And and if you, you go back to the Greek, this says, I say to you, are Peter. That is the Greek word petros. It means little rock. Not Little Rock, Arkansas, but little rock. A little rock. And then, and upon this rock, and this is the word Petra, which means a big rock, it means a slab, it means like a boulder. And so he didn't say, you're the rock, Peter, and upon you I'm building my church. He said, no, you, I say to you, you are Peter, you're the little rock, and upon this rock, the rock that he's building it on is the confession that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior. The church is built on the fact that we tell people Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God, and that's when He says, "And the, I will." Future tense. I will build my church. And so I wanted you to understand that it's a future aspect. The church. When Jesus told Peter this, is back over here. He said, "I will build my church." And if you and I'm going to go quickly through this, but if you remember that in John 14, He says, "I'm going to leave, and I'm going to ask the Father, and He'll give you another Helper. Who is the Helper?" He is the Spirit of Truth. That's the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because they hadn't seen Him yet. But but you will know Him because He abides with you. And what He's going to do is He's going to come be in you. Now that's Him teaching what's going to happen. And then in Acts, right before He's leaving, He says, "I want you to go back to Jerusalem. Do not leave Jerusalem. To wait for what it was promised. what was promised." The Holy Spirit, he says, you have heard from me, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized, identified with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when you get to, that they're gonna, the Holy Spirit is going to come and they're going to baptize them. And when we say baptism of the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the Holy Spirit placing them in Christ. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit takes a person, praises them in Christ. We'd say this, they identify them in Christ. And of course, on the first day, on the day of Pentecost, they were all in one place and there came from heaven like a noise, like a rushing wind. It filled the house and there appeared tongues of fire. That's the uh, symbolic of the Holy Spirit coming. They rested on them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit was giving utterance. That's the day of Pentecost. That's the day the Holy Spirit Spirit came. That's the day they were placed in Christ. That's the beginning of the church. So it's pretty impressive. And if you look at this verse, let's say so, Pentecost, is the beginning of the church, and the Holy Spirit came to indwell believers. But also, and this is why I want you to see this verse, that it says, by one Spirit we were all baptized. The word baptized means identified into one body. What body? What body? The body of christ we were all baptized identified into one body whether jews or greeks whether slave or free we're all made to drink one spirit by the spirit so on the day of pentecost the holy spirit actually placed believers in christ and that formed the body of christ so here's the believer and here's christ the body of christ which is the church and when they believed, the Holy Spirit baptized them, which means identified them, placed them in union in Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit also came to indwell them, because that was His promise. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are two different things. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is when the Holy Spirit places us in Christ. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. All happened at exactly the same time. And the moment nowadays when any of us, when a person puts their faith in Christ, when they believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life, that exact moment, they're regenerated. We've been talking about that. We saw that last semester. And they are placed in Christ. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit actually comes to live inside of uh, of us or them. That all happens at exactly the same time. That's the church, the body of Christ. Now what is so amazing is the church is the only people group that God has used up to this point in time in history that have a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit could come upon people and, and, and give them power to serve. There was a guy named Belalel who, who, uh, who made the articles for the temple and for the tabernacle. And there was a time the Holy Spirit came upon Saul. There was a time we're going to see that the Holy Spirit's going to come upon David. In fact, that's why David, when he sinned, he said, Oh, Lord, don't take your what? Holy Spirit away from me. Because the Holy Spirit well, didn't permanently indwell people. The Holy Spirit could come and go. We know that the Holy Spirit left Saul. We know that Saul got the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming in the Old Testament was not salvation. Salvation was always by faith, and it was always regeneration, but the Holy Spirit could come and go. And so for us, it's so amazing that we as the body of Christ, when we trust Christ, not only are we placed in Christ, but the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. And it can't, it, He doesn't ever leave. And so even if we sin, which we all do, and even if we sin bad, which we all do, the Holy Spirit never leaves us. So we don't have to pray David's psalm when he said, Take not your Holy Spirit away from me because he he could have. God could have said, You're not serving me the way I want you to, so I'm gonna remove the power and give it give the power to somebody else. But for us, by the grace of God, he says, the body of Christ, the church, gets Gets the Holy Spirit. And so that's when the church began. It's very, very powerful. Now, I want to I show you something. I'm, I'm, let me catch up. The church is really, the Holy Spirit places us in Christ. That's in his body. And we're identified with Christ and the body of Christ. So if I said, does every one of us in this room have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us? We'd say, yes. I'd say, Are every one of us placed in Christ and in union with him? Yes. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if any man be what? In Christ, he's a new creation. I want us to think about how the church is unique. Now, first of all, the church is unique, and I want you to read this now. Now, now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, talking to the Gentiles. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. What groups? Jews. What groups? Jews. Who? Jews. Gentiles. When we trust Jesus Christ, the Jew and the, the body of Christ, the Jew and the Gentiles become one. They've been separate all this time. Remember? You were formerly far off. Now he has made his peace. He made two groups into one. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, that was the law system, and might reconcile them in one body. What's the body? body of Christ, to God through the cross. And so the first aspect I want you to see is the, the, when I said the church is unique, Ephesians 2 is that both Jews and Gentiles are together in the body of Christ. That's really amazing thing. It's never been. In fact, you actually have three different groups now. There used to be at the beginning from Adam and Eve to Genesis chapter 12, there were Gentiles. And then from Genesis 12 all the way up to the death and resurrection of Christ, there were Jews and Gentiles. And now, because of the church, the church is a unique group made up of, of Jews and Gentiles in the one body. So you have the Jew, the Gentile, and the church of God. It's so powerful. And that's why in 1 Corinthians he says, Give no offense either to Jews or to the Greeks, as Gentiles, or to the church of God. So there are three units Basically, now, Jews, Gentiles, and the church. If you're Jewish now, and you put your faith in Christ, you're still Jewish, but what do you become? The church. If you're a Gentile, and you put your faith in Christ, you're a Gentile, but what do you become? The church. And so that's who we are. Pretty unique, pretty special. So the first thing is, the first way the church is unique is Jews and Gentiles in one body. The second way the church is unique is found in Ephesians 3, 3 through 6, which the church was a mystery. Now, this is pretty unique when you think about it. The church was a mystery not revealed in the Old Testament. Let me read something to you. This is Ephesians. Ephesians 3, and it says this. Uh, he said, Paul says, I, By revelation, I want to make known to you the mystery which I wrote before. He says... By referring to this, you can understand the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, but has now been revealed by the apostles and prophets. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus. He says, well, the church was a mystery that, that, that had been hidden in the past. It is now known that we come together into one body, and now the mystery is revealed. If you go to the Old Testament... You will never find the church. We're not, never mentioned because we're a mystery. And that's why when you study the book of Daniel, and we taught Daniel on Sunday morning, I think. I think it was Sunday morning that we did it, in which we went to Daniel nine twenty four through 27, and Daniel gave the end time events, and he saw eighty three years, and then the Messiah died. And right after that, Daniel saw the tribulation. And we'd say, wait, Daniel, whoa, 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 whoa. This is This is church. And then after the church is the rapture and the tribulation. But Daniel went from Christ right to the tribulation. Why? He never heard of the church. It was a mystery. And if you read the Bible, be careful because I know people who try to find verses about us in the Old Testament and they're not there and they get confused. Uh, and, And sometimes they will read second coming passages, and they want to think of those as rapture passages rapture 's only for the church, and it 's a mystery it 's not found in the of the old testament so that's that 's kind of a good one okay so the church was the mystery um, not revealed in the Old Testament. Jews and Gentiles would be the equal in the body of Christ, revealed in the New testament we 're heirs together in christ that takes us to the third thing and that is that by one spirit we are identified into one body so we got jews and gentiles together we got the fact that it was a mystery but now we've got this great truth that we're we're in one body we're baptized into one body one body with many members that's why we always talk about the body of christ coming together and we'll talk about on sunday morning we'll say what are your gifts one body with what Many members. And all of us don't have the same gifts, talents, and abilities. And that's, you know, that's the bottom line. We're supposed to do that. We've we've really talked about the mystery. So, whoops, let me go back. So, one body with many members. So, just remember that. So, the church is unique how? Jews and Gentiles are one body. Uh, It was a mystery in the Old Testament. And by one spirit, we've been all placed into one aspect and one body. Okay. With that in mind, and I'm just looking at the clock. Okay, we may have to go just a touch faster. So I, I've been talking very slow, so I'll speed it up a little bit. But anyway, so <laughs> let's talk about Jesus Christ. Let's talk about Jesus Christ as the Church. And I've got the, the, that that uh, He is the Church, and there are four things I want you to think. First of all, He is the foundation of the Church, and that's. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 11, Ephesians 2.20. He is the foundation of the church. It says in 1 Corinthians, For no other man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation of the church. And that's when Paul uses one analogy and he says, you start with this foundation and you build upon it, but you got to all start with the same foundation which is Christ and then you build on it good, uh, you know, wood, hay or, or, or stubble or gold, silver or precious stones. So the foundation is Jesus Christ. And that's why when we start thinking about the church and the body and everything, everything goes back to Christ. Everything is about our Savior Jesus. The second thing is that he is the cornerstone. Ephesians two twenty says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus Christ Himself is the cornerstone. I want to. Uh, our, our college ministries call what? Cornerstone, because it all goes back to Jesus Christ. Listen to this. This is um, this is Acts chapter four. Just listen to this. This is. Uh, They're talking when they got arrested and everything. and uh, The disciples got arrested. And here's what uh, he's standing up and he's talking and talking before the high priest. And he says, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ whom you crucified. This is how this man got healed. And then he says, Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you and he has become the chief cornerstone. Well, know that when they built a the building, the cornerstone was the main stone and they built the things around it. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. First Peter, listen to this. I love this verse right here. This is First Peter 2. He says, first Peter 2, verse 6, For it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. He's the cornerstone. Well, I love it, and I'm glad that our college ministry is called Cornerstone, because that's what, you know, when, when you talk to people, if somebody says, why is it called Cornerstone? I say, because Jesus is the Cornerstone. He's, he's everything. The third thing is that he's the head. He's the head of the body, and that's the Ephesians 1, and he says, he's put all things subjecting to him, giving him over the church, which is his body. He's the head of every aspect of the church, and that's why when we think about it, we say the church is the body of Christ. And then last but not least, he's the owner. He's the owner of the church. He purchased it. In Acts 20, it says, Be on your guard. This is Paul. This is Paul talking to the elders. And he said, Be on your guard for yourselves and the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He purchased us. He owns us. Remember the verse that says, What do you not know? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit is in you. You're not your own. You have been what? Bought with a price. So he's the owner. And so it's amazing when we think about all of these things that he is the owner of. it. So he's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. He's the head. And he's the owner. So pretty powerful things that we see in mean, with that in mind, then we're going to get a little bit more practical aspect here. Of course, he purchased it with his own blood. Let's get a little practical. and Let's talk about the form of the church. Now, that's going to sound a little weird. And we've got two different things to talk about, the structure and the offices. Now, this gets, this gets a little bit practical because we're going to see some things in the scriptures. And the scriptures give us a lot of leeway. In what we might call the structure of the church it doesn't give us a lot of leeway in the offices of the church because it tells us that. But I want to show you some things. When you talk about the form of a church, uh, let me ask you a question: What's the form of our church? Do anybody know what I mean by that? How does it function? How does it run? Well, yeah, and that's right, and that's part of it. <laughs> it well, is it? Yeah, I know. I know. Isn't that pretty funny? When you start thinking about it, you say, "This is our church," but we're not. We're not exactly sure. Well, that's because we're actually a hybrid. Let me just let me give you some things. First of all, here's the different forms of uh, of uh, the structures of the church. The first one is what we call Episcopalia. Now, that sounds funny, but it comes from the Greek word episkopos, which means an overseer. So we just put it up that way. It's from the Greek word for overseer. And what this is, okay, it's like a church. Okay, here's the body. Let's say this is the local body. And they have somebody who oversees that body. Then they have somebody who oversees that person. And, and, and there may be another couple. And then they have somebody who oversees these. This person sometimes calls a bishop. This person sometimes called an archbishop. This person sometimes called a pope. This is a form of government. It's kind of a, what we call a hierarchy form of government. And uh, that, that, uh, that you have different people ruled by those above. Many times the local church does not usually own the church. The building—it's usually owned by a denomination. It's usually owned by something, and it would be, it'd be—it'd be people like it would be Episcopal, Catholic, Methodist. Uh, so there, there, are people. At you, we know that there are churches in this town. That there, there's the building. And they might have a pastor or they might call him a priest. They might call him something else. And then there's somebody who oversees that area. And then there's somebody like a bishop who oversees that area. Then there's something called an archbishop who oversees a whole bunch of people. And then it goes all the way back to something else. So that's called the Episcopalian or the Episcopos because it comes from the Greek word Episcopos, which means an overseer. Okay? Does that make sense? And so that's a lot of churches, or many churches, that's their function. There's a second one. We call it representative, and it comes from the Greek word presbyteros. You've probably automatically, when you hear that, what do you think of? Presbyterian. Okay, now this is a form of government in which it's elder rule, meaning that here's a local church, and there's an elder, or elders, and then above those elders is sometimes called a synod or something like that. And there, there are more rulers, elders, that oversee them. And so uh that's a normal form. Now some local churches have elders who rule and they don't they're not under somebody else. This would be like an autonomous church. It would be like a Bible church, okay. This would be like a Presbyterian type church, and so when you see this form of government, and and people say, well, you know, it's elder rule. The person who did these slides says, what they say goes. Well, most in a lot in some situations, that if the elder says something, the people have to do it, whatever he says, or whatever these elders say, they have to. Uh, we have elders, but our, you don't have to do what anybody. I mean, you should, you should. But anyway, the bottom line is, you know, I mean, it's not like it's a law, you know. And, and in this situation, like a Presbyterian church, usually the Presbyterian uh, denomination owns the building. I had a friend who was working in a Presbyterian church in Columbus, Mississippi, and they had an orphanage. And the Presbyterian leaders here told them they didn't want them to have the orphanage and they said we got like 20 kids here it's incredible we want the orphanage they said no and they said yeah and so one day they came and the whole building was locked up and they moved everything out and they had to leave their building because the presbytery shut down the church it was their church so to speak the presbytery church now you know elder rule church like ours the elders don't rule the church. I mean, don't run the church and tell you what to do. You've elected them and put them in places of responsibility. And we'll, we'll talk more. This is, there's, a like the Presbyterians are under a synod, but this would be like Reformed Presbyterian or Bible churches, okay? Now, if we look at us, we have, we have a congregation and we have elders, okay? And deacons. We'll talk more about that too. And so, our church is a combination because I'm going to show you a third way, okay? Here's a third way. And you've probably seen this one too. It's called Congregational Rule. And that is where the congregation rules by vote. People come together and they decide what they want to do. It's led by the pastor or a board that oversees it, but the congregation rules it. And this would be like Baptist or Congregationalist. Now, uh, the, all none of these... The Bible doesn't say, set your government of your local church up in, in any of these ways or none of these ways. The Bible doesn't give a thing. Now, when you look through the scripture, you see that all the forms can be found. There was a time in which the apostles were the overseers of everything. Paul would write to the Corinthian church and tell them what to do. It was the Episcopos type form. Then you could find later on, there were times in which you saw elder rule. If you remember that, they would they would appoint elders in every one of the cities, and there was elder rule. And then there are times you'll find that when Paul and Barnabas got set apart to go out on a mission, what came together? The body came together and let them go. And so what you actually find is the Scripture allows you to do just about whatever you want. I remember reading John Walvoord, who was the president of Dow Seminary, when I was there. He said this, As the church matured and the apostolic authority died off, the government of the churches passed to the local church themselves. And it did. And so we are an autonomous church, which means you built this building. It belongs to you. It belongs to us. You raised up leaders we call elders. You, you, uh, we don't have to have a congregational meeting and say, is it okay if we buy paper? You know, listen, I, 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 I've been in a congregational rural church in which they met monthly for a, what do they call them, a business meeting, and they decided whether you bought paper or not at that meeting. The worst, I have to throw this out, but I was in a church years ago, one of the greatest churches ever, but it was a congregational rule. And so one time they stood up and somebody made a motion that one of the one of the deacons made a motion that they needed to get a copy machine for the church. And so all of a sudden, you know, they said, uh, uh, we'll get some information. Well, they come back the next month and they have four pages and it has... Like 15, 18 different copy machines, startup speed, numbers. I mean, just all this information. And they handed it out to everybody. And then they said, all right, tell us which one you want. What do you think happened? People went crazy. Oh, you got to have a Xerox. It's the best one we ever had. No, we had a Xerox, and it it broke down every five minutes. And they began to argue, and they fussed, and it went crazy. I was sitting there. I was coaching at Mississippi State, and I have never seen people get mad because nobody could make it. I just stood up. I mean I was nothing I mean I was just i said let me let me make a suggestion. why don't we have the elders search this out at, or the deacons and pick maybe the two best ones they say and then come back and let us talk about it and they went oh, that's a good idea. I said, man, I don't know if I can handle this or not, but I mean it was <laughs> terrible. And so uh, I've been in a congregational rule church before, and there was all kind of disasters in there as well. So when you look at it, congregational rule by itself doesn't work very well. But congregational rule with an elder rule, like our church, works really well. Because what happens is we come together what, yearly and semi-annually, and we present a budget, and you okay the budget. If we're going to buy something big, like we're going to buy land or something, we bring it to you and say, is this okay with you? When we set up our missions and we hand it out, and we say, is it okay with you? So the, the body ultimately says yes or no, but on a day-to-day and month-to-month, the body doesn't decide if we buy paper or... I mean, I had a pastor friend who, who lived in a country church, country church that was about 20 miles away from Greenville, Mississippi. And one day he was in Greenville and he went into the Christian bookstore and he bought some communion cups. And at the next business meeting, a person stood up and said, who gave you the authority to go into Greenville and buy those communion cups? And he said, well, I was in Greenville and I knew we needed some." He said, you don't have the right to do that. That has to come through a business meeting. And see, so that's when I think it gets ridiculous. Okay, so we are so fortunate. We're a combination of this. and 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 I think it's... Really the best way to work. And so the authority is vested in the congregation, but at the same time led by elders and men, men in places of leadership. So I think it's powerful. Any questions or anything on that? before we go on, we still got about five more minutes. We got one more little area to talk about. Okay, so let's, let, that's the the structure. Let's talk about the offices, and we we all know this. I mean, we know the offices. The two offices found in First Timothy chapter three and Titus chapter one. The two offices are elders and deacons. Let's talk about it for a second. And this was this was you know as I said, a person made these slides for me. It says elders give the spiritual oversight. Pastor is one that is true. The pastor is in our church. I'm I'm the pastor, but I'm also an elder, and we have a board of elders. We have seven elders. Uh, We have a board of deacons as well. We'll talk about them in just a second. But the elders uh, are supposed to give spiritual oversight. The word elder means older man, uh, and it's supposed to be an older man who helps oversee the ministry aspect and so that's what the elders do and if there's issues i mean if there's issues in the in the body with sin or things like that elders would be the first ones to have to deal with that and unless you personally dealt with it which is what you should do if you knew about a sin you'd go to that person first but that's what the elders do and they oversee and do those kind of things the other office is the uh, the deacon Deacon, literally the, the, the Greek word for deacon means a servant the original word meant to stir up dust that's what it meant and it was a person who served and it was a person like they would go and they'd pick this up and they'd pick this up and the floors were dirt and so dust would come up behind them and they were called the deacons because they stirred up dust and then later it just became a servant there's a male—I mean, there's a, a masculine deacon, and there's also a Greek word "deaconess," which means a woman servant. And some people, there's there's all kind of arguments and questions on whether women could take an office of deacon. Or deaconess, or whether it just meant a woman who serves in the church. At our church, but at this stage, we just—if we, a woman says, "I want to serve," we say, "You can serve and do anything you want." But we don't have an office of deaconess. We don't have that. Our our st- structure is set up with these two offices: elders and deacons. There's a little controversy when you read through First Timothy chapter three, and it talks about the wives, the wives of the deacons. And some people say that that shouldn't be wife of a deacon, it should be woman who is a, the, you know, and so they, there's all kind of little controversies. I think in the, the Greek it's, it's plain that it means a wife of a deacon, but anyway, some people look at it in a different way. So that's the two offices, elders and deacons. Let me just say this about our elders and deacons. Um, they're incredible. We got some, some incredible men in those positions of leadership, and, and so we're so thankful. I'm so thankful. I mean, we, we've been a church, what, eight years? Brian, how long? Eight and a half? Or, or right at eight? Is it coming up eight? Or is it eight and a half? Eight and a half. Can you believe that? Eight and a half? Man, I'm, I'm not getting any younger. But anyway, so the bottom line is we have a great church, and we have great people in places of leadership. And then we've got a staff that's incredible. And then we've got everybody else who does the ministry, you're touching so many lives it is amazing i it, our church we are so fortunate to to have what we have and uh you you can look back and we're, we're just now we're re- redoing a lot of things and we're redoing our membership training handbook and uh it, it you, when you look through the handbook it takes you through some stuff and you start thinking back about when we started the church and it started in 2012 and there were 40 people that met in a barn and met to talk about what we wanted to do and all that. I mean, so we're so fortunate to think about the building that we have. Look at this building. I mean, it's out of this world. It's so good. So anyway... Great, great stuff. So let me give you some things to think about. Is let's first of all summary. Understand, and I, I think you can put that under the summary. Understand that the church is the body of Christ, and it is distinct. And I just wanted to make sure that we grasp that it is distinct from the nation of Israel. They're not the same. Don't put them the same. Just remember that Israel is Israel, and the promises to Israel are made to Israel and will be fulfilled. And the promises of the church are made to the church, and they will be fulfilled. So they're two different things, and uh, we're not in the replacement theology as some people call it. So the church is the body of Christ. It's distinct. The second one is the church was formed on the day of Pentecost. That's what we believe. That's what we believe when it started. Um, There there are some people who actually teach that since Israel is the church, they say Israel is the church, that the church started when the nation of Israel started, and then it's just changed up. We don't hold to that. We hold to the day of Pentecost. And then the third thing is understand that the structure, the form, and the offices of the church, and we we understand that we have a lot of freedom. This is one thing that I love about the Bible. On certain things, it gives you information, and you say, that's what it is. And then a lot of other things, it gives you all kind of freedom. The Bible doesn't say, here's how you organize a church. It does tell you, here are the two offices in a church, but it doesn't tell you, like, how to set up a government and all that. Let me ask you a question. Where do you find membership, church membership in the Bible? There's nowhere. And so people say, you want to be a member? And and we people say, yeah, you want to be a member? You need to be a member. But they could say, well, what does it say in the Bible I need to be a member? But the truth is they, they didn't have membership in that way. Uh, and, and But it wasn't quite the same. I mean, in the church of Corinth, when that guy got into trouble and they kicked him out, there wasn't another church to go to. And you're either in it or out of it. And so membership today is, for us, is more of a, a convenient way to say, who are the people connected with the church? And let me just be real honest. When you say, I want to be a member, you're saying, I'm submitting to the authority of that church. And that means if I were to have sin in my life and somebody find out about it, it could be dealt with. And, you know, that's really rare. But, I mean, that's that's what you're really saying when you join a church. You say, I'd like to come under that church, under that authority. I'd like to serve in that church. I'd be a part of that local body. So, anyway, understand the structure and all of that. The um, the verse, the memory verse is Ephesians one twenty-two and 23. And he put all things in subject and under his feet. God put all things subjected under Christ's feet and gave him, Christ, as head over what? Over all things to the church, which is his body. He's the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of of him who fills all and all. So really great, great stuff.